Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, good evening, however you're listening to the show. We want to thank you for listening to Suspense Radio. I am your host, John Robb. It's great to have you all with us. Today is February the 11th, 2017, and we have four outstanding authors, which means we got two hours of show for you today. We're going to be kicking it off with author Alexandria Weiss. We're going to then be going to Elizabeth Hader, Kimberly Howe, and then we're going to finish up, because of course it's February, with... New York Times bestseller Lisa Gardner talking. So we got two newcomers and two older ones on the show that we've had on before, so it should be an outstanding show to be able to see what everybody's got going on in the world of books. There's a lot of things that have been talked about the last couple weeks, especially with the New York Times and their bestseller list. And we're going to probably get into that a little more with Lisa because she's a little more well-versed in all of those things and kind of see where she stands on what the New York Times is doing. We want to remind you all that our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. Make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. Check out the new website. Go to suspensemagazine.com. You'll see a lot of past issues up there, with our, uh, including our current uh, best of issue, which is still there. Our next one should be out sometime in the next couple of weeks. So it should be good to uh, get back into some new stuff here in 2017. So let's jump right in here with our first guest, her latest book, it's called Blackwell. Um, it's set back in the 1800s, and this is the first time that we've spoken with her, so we're grateful to have her on the show today. So we want to thank her so much for coming on. Alexandria, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me, John. I love your intro, by so, the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. The music or my speech? <laughs> the music. I love the music. I felt like I was like, uh, coming out into a, a large stage. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love I love um I love that song. It's uh I first heard it a long time ago. I mean, of course it's been around forever, but I first heard it a long time ago when I was at an Ozzy Osbourne concert and that's how he started his show with that music and then of course then the curtain drops and he jumps into <laughs> I don't know and I was like, Oh, that's a really cool way to start a show so it always stuck with me and then I finally found out the name of that song was O Fortuna and Carmen and I was like, That's it, gotta have it so I've always been using it. Okay, well, I love that. That works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like I mentioned before, your your latest book is out now. It came out um, January 17th. It's called Blackwell. Uh, I like yeah. the uh, subtitle of it, Hell Has a New Master. Um, so, you got to give us the inside scoop of what you got going on here. Well, Blackwell is actually it's the first book in a series, and it's the it's going to be a ghost story. But this is the prequel to everything that Magnus Blackwell did in his life, his dastardly deeds, if you will, and all the things that sets up for what comes later, which is going to be the ghost story and how all, and you get a, this is basically his whole life and what he's done. And then the, the coming books will be about 
where he goes and what he and how he spends his afterlife and the things he has to do to to earn his redemption. Now, so you did this uh, like just a little bit different because you know typically when books like this come out, a lot of the times it kind of jumps right into the story. And then maybe they'll give you some of the backstory, and then they'll go back as a prequel to kind of see. But you've decided to say, you know what, here's the backstory, here's the prequel, then we're going to get into the meat of the stuff that's going to do going forward. What kind of was the thought process behind, you know, wanting to do it that way? Well, it's actually, this is, it's Magnus Blackwell's story. So it's, it's the story of a continuum from, you know, life, death, afterlife. It's his story. And to really set it up, you, I mean, you can – flashbacks were great, and I'm not against them, but there was so much that we needed to incorporate that if we had, you know, tied everything in the one book and flashing back and forth, I, we felt like it would be too much and it would take away from the character. So we really wanted to – spend the time for everyone to get to know him. And that's the purpose of the book, to get to know Blackwell as a character, that character you love to hate, and that would make you interested to continue reading about what's going on. So that was the point of it, yes. Ah, fascinating. So give us, then, who is Blackwell? Why did you decide, you know, to kind of explore this character uh, you're setting this in the, eight, in the late 1800s, so, of course, cell phones are out the window, technology's out the window. You know, you actually have to develop characters, something that's a little harder to do in today's day and age. It seems a lot of the thrillers I read, they rely a lot more on technology and cute little things right. like that instead of right. doing characters. But you have to do it the exact opposite. You have to do the characters because there is no technology. So why Blackwell? What was the pull? I mean, what, 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 what in the setting and everything? Give us that. Well, think about it. I mean, if you're going to go to a time where a, a man had absolute power to do whatever he wanted, it's not so much in this day and age where we're tied to technology and, you know, a lot more societal changes and things going on. And, but in that time, when a man could, he could be as ruthless as he, as he wanted, and he had no limits. Um, and to really like to explore his character, to see how dark somebody could go, um, if if given the opportunity, and that's really the point of setting it then um, to have that, and also to have the space of time, um, because most part of the book takes place in New Orleans, and part of the book takes place at his ancestral home in Mount Desert Island, Maine, which is called Out Mover Manor. So part of it was allowing the time for Outmover Manor to change and to morph, and then we go into, you know, modern times is going to be setting of the next book. But I really, we felt that to really explore Magnus, to make him, you know, hell has a new master, you needed a time where he could do that and, um, you know, where there were no limits. And he's a wealthy New Englander, you know, the only son of a, prominent family he has he has you know he has nothing stopping him so if he's wrong and if he has that evil intent how far is he going to go and that's really the point of the book just to show if if given the opportunity how how dark can a character get and that's what we're really showing I mean I wanted him to be I, I love him I loved writing and he was just he was so much fun um but it, it putting him in that time 
you could do whatever you wanted. And not having the technology was actually uh, a lot of freedom. Now, going back and researching, you know, did they have gas here? Did they have electric, the clothes? I mean, I love research, so that was just intriguing to me. Um, but it, it, it makes your characters different. It's, um, we know how we are today. We know how we talk today. We know how we get along, how we, you know, but how did they do it then when you have so much of the Victorian um, mannerisms and so much of the Victorian etiquette um, relaying into how they do things? So it, it, it was a different approach. I, it was just a lot of fun for me. I really enjoyed it. Now, people, of course, are going to notice that you wrote with a co-author in Lucas Astor. Right. What was that uh, kind of about? Because when a lot of people go to your website, and I'll just plug it here now, alexandriaweist.com, and I'll spell it A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-E-A, and then W-E-I-S.com, they're going to notice that this is a little bit different story than what you normally write. I mean, you have a lot of, you know, a, a lot of romantic uh, suspense. You have a lot of you know, I guess you want to say romantic supernatural kind of stories that, that you know, that, that you wrote. I mean, the one that I think is fascinating that I might have to read is called The Bondage Club. That just sounds cool. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's for different yeah. reasons. Yeah, but, yeah. But, yeah. You, know, you know, hey, we all got yeah. our guilty pleasures. Don't judge. <laughs> Don't judge. You know, we're just, we're just asking the question. We're not judging here. So um, I love it. So, I mean, what – you know, when you decided, you know, was it Lucas that kind of brought the idea? Was it you that kind of brought it? How did that dynamic kind of get together? Well, Lucas actually approached me. It was an outline, basically an outline, kind of like a short story outline, two pages, two and a half pages. And um, what Lucas had written was about Magnus Blackwell, um, all the things that happened, and everything had been placed in um, the uh, Mount Desert Island um, main location. And um, some of the characters were in there and all. And I wanted, I put in, I, I, I was, there has to be an impetus. There has to be something that drives this man to do these dark deeds. Um, there has to be a change. So that's when I, you know, and I have a paranormal background. I'm from New Orleans. What else, you know? <laughs> I grew up in the French Quarter, so right. paranormal is normal to us. So, um I put in fact, in, isn't that like isn't I, that like a required class you have to study in school from like kindergarten up is paranormal in no, New Orleans? No, actually, it's it's no, it's when you grow up in the French Quarter, it's normal. It's, just trust me, yeah. yes, everybody thinks you're crazy, but everybody has ghosts. Everybody has ghosts. Everybody sees ghosts. Everybody talks about their ghosts keeping them up all night. You know, that's normal in the French Quarter. Everybody has them. It's normal. So when you grow up with that, it's like okay. Um, but I wanted to bring him to New Orleans and introduce voodoo and introduce a voodoo element and introduce him to some supernatural event that changes him, that changes his course in life. And suddenly when he thinks he can't have what he wants, he's introduced to voodoo that, it, that tells him, yes, you can. And, in, you know, he acquires what I call the baton juju, which is um, a ceremonial, basically long stick that's used in voodoo ceremonies and held by the mambo or head priestess. And um, so he acquires a baton juju um, in a not-so-very-nice way. And with that baton juju that's shaped like a dragon head, it, the power of it takes over his life and it changes him. So I introduce that element to the story. Um, we also have an offshoot where he meets Oscar Wilde in New Orleans, who did spend time in New Orleans. And Magnus becomes 
um, his Dorian Gray in a picture of Dorian Gray. So, um, you know, I twisted all that into it. And that was the initial story. And then Lucas also had the post um, ghost story. And then I took it in a whole new direction. Um, actually, this is going to be, this is four books right now. So um, it was initially one very long book. And so I morphed it and did more with it. And everybody comes up back to New Orleans and it goes in, um, in a direction I don't think a lot of people are going to expect. But um, yeah, it was it, it was a good play between us because he brought the the basic elements of it, and then I just expounded on it. So you are planning to do four books then, and then and and, and that's oh, what the you're four planning books on are doing right in the they're, series. They're done. They're done. Oh, they're, they're done. <laughs> oh yeah, I wrote wow. this thing all at one. I wrote I wrote four books on this, the whole series in five or six weeks. Holy Toledo. Yeah. Did you breathe yeah, I or did you fast. eat? <laughs> I, I, I could put out a 75, 80,000 word book in two to two and a half weeks. It Man, just comes no, and I write. Yeah, yeah. I, I write a lot and I've published it. Uh, Blackwell was my 24th published book. So um, I've written a lot of books and um, I can, it just comes and then just, you know, yeah. So I write fast. <laughs> yes. So now, aside from, <laughs> yeah, I, no, 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 you have a couple, you know, books that would would kind of be considered kind of, I guess you want to say people would consider them maybe in the same genre, but what was the, your biggest challenges when writing this? Because, you know, in looking, when people, like I say, when people look at, you know, all the books that you've written, they're going to notice that this was kind of a step a little outside of what you normally did. So did you have any big challenges in, in kind of writing this? The big challenge was, uh, you know, all the other books I've written are, um, well, there's another book I wrote that was called The Ghost of Blue Maine, and it's right. a ghost story um, set in New Orleans. And that was introducing me a lot to the, um, you know, basically um, 19th century New Orleans, but I knew a lot of that anyway. Um, but the Victorian era and studying that and um, also going outside of my comfort zone and, and writing about Boston and New England and um, – uh, you know, Mount Desert Island and, you know, it was places like that and, and getting the facts right. I'm a um, big one with getting the facts right. If you, you know, studying Google Maps and where everything is and pictures of places and, you know, doing visual tours and, yeah, I mean, I want to get the details right. So that was a challenge in the essence of I'd never written anything set in Victorian times. So um, that was fun, but I I love research. I'm an RN by training. I mean, I have my PhD in nursing, and I taught at a you know college level. So I'm used to research. Doesn't bother me. Nice. Now, uh, the other thing I was thinking about is because you know Heather Graham is probably one of the most famous, I guess you want to say, writers that came out of New Orleans, and she loves to use yes. <laughs> the city as a character. Um, yeah. And so you've kind of done the same thing. When people kind of read the book, what kind of New Orleans are you kind of, were you kind of hoping to portray to people as that extra character um, because the city is so prominent in, you know, in the story? Just it, it, the, the city is a character unto itself, and there's just um, there's so much here. There's so much. There's such a, you know, there's, 
such a varying degree of culture and, you know, different viewpoints and different people. But I think the, the big thing is imparting um, the people in the city um, and how we are our history, so to speak. Everything, you know, a lot of people in New Orleans, the, the culture and the traditions are part of them. I mean, you talk to a lot of people that leave the city and, God, they, they die on Mondays because that's Red, Bean and, Red Beans and Rice Day and they miss King Cake and, you know, they're heartsick at, at Mardi Gras. So um, I wanted to impart how the voodoo element and the voodoo culture is a part of the city and is a part of everybody's way of life out here. I mean, you have a lot of people, you know, you don't walk past a graveyard without, you know, crossing yourself or blessing the souls or, you, you know, you go down to St. Louis number one, you always say hello to um, you know, um, Marie Laveau, and you always go to her tomb and, you know, always say, hello, Miss Marie. Um, There's just things like that in this culture that everybody does because you're raised doing it. And I wanted that to be imparted, um, just the element in New Orleans in the past. And um, there's Storyville in this book um, before it was raised in in 1918 and um, how Storyville still discussed in the area everybody knows where Storyville used to be in the city and um, just the different elements in the history of voodoo as well as how it how it became part of the culture here and how it, it blended with the city um, just it, New Orleans has a very different history from the rest of the country it's um, very European in many ways yeah very French a lot of of course very French uh, influences down there my wife and I were down there a couple years ago um, for about four or five days, and yeah, and we went to St. Louis number one, and we said hi to uh, you know Marie Laveau. We saw her, mm-hmm. um, and we and of course, and there's always some kind of tribute. Someone's always paying something or leaving something at her grave. And, oh yeah, you always, you know, yeah, she's you very, always very, very present. Yeah, yeah. There's always something going on there. Um, and the the one thing that I've always been intrigued about, like with New Orleans and and the history of of these kinds of characters and the things that come out is kind of the underbelly, the things that you don't really see in the mainstream. It's kind of like walking down the alley. You know, I had really no idea about like Pirates Alley and kind of, you know, you hear Jackson Square and you hear some of the other things, but it's kind of the offbeaten kind of past things that get you in, you know, get you excited about, you know, the city because after Katrina, I think a lot of people thought that the city was just going to, uh, you know, almost like become a ghost town, and I guess in some ways, well, I mean, that's no pun intended, but in some ways it kind of did uh, for some oh, time, yeah. but now it's starting to come back a little bit. It's starting to come back in a big way, actually. No, it's, it's, um, it, it was, uh, that was, uh, that was, uh, yeah, I had 12 feet of water in my house. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but, yeah. um, it, yes, it, parts of it were a ghost town, and um, because you couldn't live there. Um, the quarter survived. The quarter always survives. The quarter never floods. It's always the highest part in the city. And um, only, I think only, you know, Burgundy Street got a little bit of water. But, I mean, um, it took some time, but it's come back. Um, it's changed. It's not the city it was before Katrina. But um, that's, you know, honestly, that's the magic of the place. It, it can constantly evolve, and it will survive. It, it New Orleans is going to be 300 years old in um, next year, in uh, 2018, wow. the 300th anniversary of the city, the founding of the city. And if you consider the city that was founded on, you know, the bend in the Mississippi River has survived that long in that area through so many things, the fires and floods and hurricanes and 
yellow fever epidemics and, and everything else, um, it's bound to come back for something like Katrina. So, um, in, you know, that it was what it was in, in during when I wrote Blackwell, you can still go to those parts of the city that I wrote about in the book, and they're still there. Bayou St. John and the, um, you know, St. John the Baptist Eve celebration that Marie Laveau started still goes on. Um, there's still voodoo ceremonies on Bayou St. John. You can still um, go to Congo Square. You can um, still walk the French quarters the same as it was, you know, 280 years ago. So those things that, you know, to, to see those things and read about them in the book and then go to the city and then actually see them, I think that's a, a rare treat for anyone that you can read about so much about New Orleans as it was 100, 200 years ago, and it's still the same. Hmm. Did, did you did you like living in this in this world? Did you like living in this genre? Do you think you know now that you've written all four books and you know is it something that you're going to maybe explore more more ghost stories, more things like this? Well, yeah, I I, I love paranormal. My thing, I, you know, anything outside of the ordinary is intriguing. Um, yeah, paranormal ghost stories. I really uh, voodoo is that you know the voodoo elements, the customs of it. Um, that all intrigues me. I've re- I've touched on it in a few books in the past. Um, a series that I just finished that put out um, called the Corn Noir series. It's set in New Orleans and it's um, a paranormal, um, you know, romance uh, erotica type of series. And um, I just find myself going in that direction more and more. So yeah, I can see myself. Um, doing more of that in the future and and lucas and i have more books coming i mean we this is the first pairing that we did together and it works so well that we have um uh you know another series coming um called the chimera effect and um and that's going to be uh modern day of course it incorporates a lot of my medical background it's involved with physician and um that's going to be more of the paranormal element taking over and then we have a um another book coming down the road so we plan on doing a lot more stuff together cuz i i love his ideas and we just seem to click so we enjoy working together oh that's really cool um yeah we have had a, we've had uh, a lot of fun now i want to kind of get real quick again into when you always write you always kind of find these secondary characters, these ones that kind of jump out that you really maybe didn't know after you started writing this that were going to be as big as they were. Do you have one or two of those characters that kind of surprised you in that way when you were kind of writing the book? You're like, wow, I had no idea that, you know, they were going to be so prominent. I always surprise myself when I write. I'm not a, um, I'm not an outline person. I don't meticulously outline a book. Uh, an outline for me is maybe a page of what's going to happen, and then I just write. And I surprise myself when I write. The characters take on a life of their own. I just I I write. I'm a gut writer. I write from my gut, and just what comes comes. Um, and um, yeah, characters surprise you. I mean, I've been literally writing a book and laughing at myself as I'm writing it, going, "Wow, I didn't expect this." So um, yeah, and and that's. You know, I I never call it writing. I call it channeling because I feel like it's somebody else's idea. I get you. Yeah. So yeah, writer. You know, you a character always surprises you, and really surprises you when the character um, becomes another series. 
and I've I've had that where a character just they um, they stick in. I've had one character I mentioned in one book, and and he became part of another series, a, you know, very important part of it. And uh, I have that where I write a lot of my books, and you know, characters that appear in one series will appear in another series, and um, you know, because they're intriguing, because they're fun, and you you know, they're they're people, and you don't want to um, let them go, so you keep them alive in your book. Mm-hmm. And when you finished the fourth book, when you were done with the series and you were over, were you kind of like, hmm, didn't really expect it to kind of finish this way? Or, you know, how how was it when you were finished? When you did you kind of feel sad, like it's kind of over? It's not finished. <laughs> it's never uh-huh. finished. Trust me, there's four books, but there will probably be more. All I have to do is walk away and go, yeah, I could do that. We could go in this direction. I mean, okay. I, I surprise myself sometimes, but no, um, it's, it, there's four, there's four books now. There can be more. There's, there's a setup where it could continue. So, um, I gotcha. yeah, there's, there's four books for now, but, um, there could be more. Oh yeah. I never shut the door on, um, that's the, even when I, I have killed somebody and said, that's the end of it. And trust me, I have brought them back and it's not the end. So, um, I finally, you never say never when you're a writer. <laughs> That's true. You can never say never when you're a writer. No. Well, we're kind of we're, we're kind of coming down to about the last minute here, so I want to kind of give you the last word to kind of let everybody know maybe the best way to, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all that fun stuff, if you want to kind of give out all your social media stuff so people can find out more information and find you. Yeah, you can find me. I'm Alexandra. Everything is Alexandria Weiss. I'm at Alexandria Weiss on Twitter. You mentioned my website, alexandriawise.com. You can also find um, my author page, Alexandria Author, on Facebook. And I'm also Alexandria Weiss on Instagram. Um, yeah, anywhere you plug in Alexandria Weiss, you'll eventually find me. <laughs> something, something, something's going to come up, Alexandria Weiss, something, right? <laughs> yeah, and the spelling, is, it's because my last name is spelled, because Alexandria is spelled E-A instead of I-A or R-A, Right. Um, it kind of stands out, and that's my mother's fault, so <laughs> that's why it's spelled that Yeah, way. well, there was – okay, now, wait a second. There was a very famous writer who wrote Dragonland series with the last name of Weiss. Any relation? Uh, no. No, I don't know. Oh, okay. No relations. Um, no. Yeah. And I spell it with one S instead of two, so there's a difference. And they No, they spell it the mm-hmm. exact same way, and it was funny because uh, it was a fantasy series a long time ago called Dragonlance, and – um, it was Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, and she spells it the exact yeah, same so way. Yeah, Margaret I Weiss, know. that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that is, so, I okay. get that, and are you related, yeah, to the to the guy who coaches Notre Dame. I get that question, too. <laughs> Charlie Weiss? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess so, okay. No. <laughs> One one of these days, though, I might have to have I might just have to talk to you maybe off the air, find out where you're at, and we got to talk about the bondage club. So one of these days, we'll have to maybe <laughs> talk about what the bondage club is. <laughs> I don't know why I'm hooked on that, but you know, I kind of see something. I'm like, interesting. Now I got to find out more. That, that that's what I do. I read a story, I see something, I'm like, oh, now I got to know more. So yeah. Well, it's not what you think, and it's like most things. It's it's everything isn't what it appears to be. And that's yeah, what, but the cover know, looks the really good. Cover. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah, it's, so. it's a cool cover. Uh, uh. <laughs> All right, Alexandria, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, and 
we will chat with you later. And good luck on the, you know, can't wait to see what you got going on with the next three books. So people are going to have to wait. Are they coming out one every year real quick? Um, I actually, yes, we think um, the second book in the Blackwell series will be out probably October of this year. So um, oh, okay. keep an so eye out they won't have to wait a full yeah. year. Okay, good. No, they so won't have to wait kind of like every year, eight but, months. Good. Yeah, we'll probably put out the second one this year and then another one next year. But, yeah. But thank you for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Enjoy. We'll talk with you later. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Alexandria Weiss. You can find her at alexandriaweiss.com for more information on the book Blackwell, um, four-book series, which we know, and could be more, which we know was set in late 1800s, um, Magnus Blackwell. Make sure you check it out. It's available now on hardcover and Kindle. Go to Amazon. You can pick it up. We were going to take a quick break, and we are going to be back with our next guest. Uh, we have had her on before. Her latest book is called Stalked. And it is Elizabeth Heider, so make sure you stay tuned for that. And we'll give you a little musical interlude. I know i got to change the music, so stop emailing until i got to change the music, because I know i got to change the music. But I didn't change the music today, so you got the cars. Everybody, after the break, we want to thank you for kicking that off that first half hour with Alexandria Weiss. It's a fabulous conversation. Again, you know, it's always interesting to me when I see somebody switching genres so, um, uh, so after writing in one for so long and then all of a sudden switching it out, especially when you're writing erotica and then you're kind of coming out and, and writing ghosts. So it was always a fascinating conversation. Our next guest we have had on several times before. We have been following her career. It's been fascinating to see. She is now in book four of her profiler series, which started back with The Hunted and then vanished and seized, and now she's got stock. So she, we definitely have the idea that she's going to stick with the one-word names on her book, 
Um, and so, Elizabeth, we want to thank you so much for coming on again. How you been? Thank you. I've been great. How are you? Oh, you know, always doing good. It's great to uh, start off the new year and kind of, uh, you know, get things back going again because, you know, the end of last year was so shitty um, with everything. <laughs> and now the new year, well, not like the new year starts off any better with the year of the news. But that's okay because we keep things positive here on this show. And it's great to be able to kind of see, you know, now you're in book four. And now you're starting to, you know, after, now when you're in kind of four, now you got yourself a series going. Now you're kind of into the series game, and now you kind of got the series going. So give us the, uh, you know, the skinny on Stocked, and then we're going to have to kind of go back and catch people up that might not have heard kind of going up through uh, all of the series. Sure. So Stocked is the fourth book in the Profiler series, but it does stand alone. I get that question a lot from people who want to jump in with the newest one. Uh, and it follows my FBI profiler, Evelyn Bain. She gets called into a case that's really different for her this time because uh, a teenager goes missing from inside her high school. And really, there were a lot of people there at the time. Someone should have seen, but no one did. And the case is, is being investigated as though it's a stranger abduction. And then about a month in, they find a note left behind in the girl's room that says, if you're reading this, I'm already dead. And that kind of changes everything. And they bring in my profiler, Evelyn Bain, to find out who in her life could have wanted her dead and why or abducted her and why. And Evelyn is kind of racing against the clock trying to hopefully bring her home alive. Yeah, when you started, when you when you kind of jumped the emotion right away uh, with the character by, you know, of course that's like a worst nightmare of a parent. I mean, and anybody, I mean, yeah. husband, wife doesn't make a difference. When you see something to that effect, I mean, you're already thrown into a shock factor. And of course, unless you've kind of lived that, it's kind of something that you know you got to, as an author, you got to kind of maybe feel for yourself, and sometimes it puts you into an uncomfortable situation. So. You know, you've been writing the series now for four, for four books, and you've been putting your characters in these situations. So how have you been able to kind of navigate those things as like an author that you're able to kind of get that realization of feeling, of emotion with the characters, even though it's, you know, that's something that you haven't, you know, lived yourself? Uh, well, I think it's a combination of things. For, for me, I, I'm – a big proponent of research, as you know, because we've talked about before. So besides yeah. just the stuff that I do on the procedural side, research-wise, I also look at a lot of real-life cases that have happened that are um, kind of in the vein of what I'm doing and see how it impacted the lives of the people who experienced them and kind of watching that play out because it's in something like this, it's really heart-wrenching to watch someone desperately searching for a person they love. However, it turns out through that process, it's, it's, it's horrible. And um, I was really, one of the things that inspired me to write this character was actually a case that I had watched many years ago, um, a mom looking for her daughter and kind of just upending her entire life so she could spend all her time, you know, with the media, with the search parties, desperately trying to find her daughter. And um, now she's a victim advocate. And that, that really inspired me, and I wanted to write about it. And I think to some extent, at the end of the day, you also just kind of have to try to put yourself in that position. What would you do if it were you? Yeah, and that can be one of those uncomfortable positions, of course, because you hope, you know, you hope it never happens to mm -hmm. anybody and, you know, and having to write about it. But 
so let's kind of look back here and let's kind of move forward through the series. Like I said, you know, it started back with the Hunted a couple years ago, and then you went into Vanished and Seized. Now, of course, uh, as you're writing, and like you said, you know, the books are standalones, but there's always an underlying, you know, series tone that, that goes with them from one through four. When you, so when you look back at Hunted and now you're kind of going through the series, what is kind of the progression that you've kind of wanted to lead the readers through now that you're in through the fourth book? Well, I, I always knew from the beginning that I, I hoped for this to be a series. So when I created my, my profiler, Evelyn Bain, I made her in such a way that, you know, I, I hoped people would identify with her in the first book, of course, but I kind of purposely gave her space to grow and every book before I start, I think really hard about um, not just the plot that I'm interested in writing, but can it make my character grow in an interesting way? Because if not, it's probably not right for the series. So in Hunted, Evelyn was very, very socially awkward, a fantastic profiler, but kind of cut off. Um, she had lost her best friend when she was 12 years old. Her, her friend went missing and was never found, and that was the impetus for her to go into the FBI. It made her extremely driven, but her, her background also made her um, cut herself off from people. And so through the series, that's kind of one of her biggest points of growth is that she really changes. So by book four, um, her relationships have really changed. The way she approaches people has really changed, and that's been fun to write. And it, it also happens throughout the series because – in Vanished, uh, she gets a chance to, to go back and find out what might have happened to her best friend when there's another abduction 18 years ago, 18 years later, that looks just like her best friend's abduction. And so she actually does get to solve that case. And so um, in Seized, the third book in the series, she's taken, um, taken hostage by a group of survivalists that the FBI has deemed a cult, but, but a fellow agent thinks is a real threat. And while she's in there, she's really struggling with her identity, and, and that kind of ties into the cult thing because in the previous book, she, she solved the case that brought her to the FBI. So in Seas, she's really struggling with, does she still belong there, and is this still her passion? And in Stock, she's kind of uh, found, found her way a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've definitely moved her through. Is this kind of how you were kind of hoping things would go, or did, you know, did did Elizabeth kind of uh, say, mm, or Alvin, my fault, did she kind of say, yeah, you know what, I, I think I'm going to kind of change things up on you a little bit here, Elizabeth, and kind of do things this way? A little bit of both, and actually a little bit of the publisher, too, because originally um, I had intended for Seize to be the second book and Vanish to be the third, and the publisher wanted you know, to do it the other, the other way, which worked out, ended up working out really well uh, thematically for my character development. Um, but that kind of changed the progression, especially of her relationship. There's a fellow agent uh, in the, the FBI that she develops a relationship with, and that really changed that arc a lot. So a little bit of both, because obviously as you're writing the stories and as you're coming up with each new plot, I didn't know the fourth plot. I kind of knew what I wanted to do for books one through three when I wrote Hunted, but I didn't know what, what stock would be at the time. So as I go, the plots kind of also change her. Now, and of, and of a lot of people who write series always say, of course, that you write these books at standalones. But, you know, and I kind of understand what that is, but then I was kind of thinking, I'm like, does, does the reader understand what that means by saying, because a lot of times people look and say, well, how can I just pick up book four when you have one, two, and three out? What does that mean by these are standalones? I mean, you got three books out before. It's like, I guess they would kind of be saying, well, it's kind of like watching, 
you know, the goblet of fire first and then having to go back, you were kind of missed. So when you do write a book in a series, but say that it's kind of a standalone, what would, how do you kind of explain that to the reader so they understand that premise? Right. Well, I always say that if you, you know, if you pick up Stocked and you haven't read any of the other books, everything will make sense to you. You won't feel like you're missing out or uh, not understanding the character or something like that just because you're reading book four and you haven't read the first three. The mystery stands alone. The character, you're not, I'm not going to throw in stuff that you don't understand because you haven't read the first book. If you start at the beginning and read all the way through to four, you're kind of going to get like a bonus, I guess, in a way, because you're going to understand a little bit more of her backstory and you'll have seen her growth in a different way. Um, I personally like to read series from the beginning, but if you don't and you want to start with the newest one, you're not going to feel lost. Yeah, and I, that's important. And so, I mean, because you look at some authors like, you know, what, like Patterson and Child and Ivanovich, they got, you know, 20 books out on their on their character, and people will be like, yeah, that's daunting to have to go back and read it right. from the beginning. So. Yeah, and you know, and we're looking in ten years. You're going to have you know fourteen, fifteen books uh, if you keep continuing this series under your belt. So you're going to be kind of right in that moment too. Um, now I did mention at the beginning that, and I wanted to kind of get your take because you're kind of an author that this would be very much affected by, uh, or could be affected by. Which you probably heard about the New York Times and them changing up their bestseller, how they're doing it with no paperbacks anymore, and they're kind of doing more of a. Uh, I guess you want to say a combo thing together. So it's going to eliminate, you know, certain authors and that in turn could affect you as an author. So how do you kind of feel about that? You know, what is your understanding of why they did and what they did, what, you know, why they decided to kind of go that way? You know, I'm not entirely sure what their, what the impetus was for them to eliminate some of those lists. Obviously as someone who's, I mean, my profiler series are released in mass market paperback originals, um, which is great for my readers because then they come out at a great price point. Um, but that means that, that that list is now gone. So for me, that's really, that's kind of sad. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't write the books to get on the list or it, that's kind of like an added bonus. So um, all you can do is, is write the books and, and hope that, I mean, I do hope they change their mind on this, but I don't, I really don't know what the, what, why they did it. I, I, found it. I kind of found it to be a strange choice to eliminate those lists. Yeah, and, then, and I'm going to talk to Lisa about it too later because I'm curious to hear because, of course, she's always on the list. Now, she does it with her mm -hmm. hardcovers, and so I don't know how much she'll be affected, but I'm sure friends of hers will be affected. My view always was, I've, and, I, and I'll be honest, I've never, ever once gone back and looked at the New York Times bestseller list to see what books I wanted to buy. Even before I got into right. this business, it was just something I never looked at. I told, you know, and I always said, uh, I think in 20 years, I don't even think there will be a list anymore because my daughters, you know, they're 24 and 20. They get their information on a five-by-five five screen. They don't, that's what they right. do. I don't even think they've even been to NewYorkTimes.com. So I I just think that the older people that you know get that I mean have you ever have you ever picked a book off the off the New York Times bestseller list and said oh I'm going to read this or you know you find them in other ways I, I do find them in other ways I think I, I don't really look at the list honestly I mean sometimes I do if someone I know is on there I'll, I'll go check it but I don't I I will notice it on the cover if it says that they're a best-selling author of some sort but that never 
impacts whether or not I buy the book. At the end of the day, it's, it's people have told me it's good, or I read the back cover and I'm intrigued. So that's really how I, I choose books. It doesn't have to do with the list at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree too. I mean, I, and the one thing though, because Jeff and I talked about this when it first came out a couple of weeks ago, is you know we and his big thing was, but this could hurt authors getting their next book from their publisher if they don't make the list because um, you know some people would be like, oh, you know what, you didn't make the New York Times list, so we're not going to do your next book. And I'm like, if a publisher is using that as a basis for their business, then I think that they're fundamentally flawed in how they're looking at doing it. If they want to look at sales, that's the different way. But right. to say you didn't make a list, which is very subjective, and I don't even think anybody knows how to even pick the damn books to get on there to say the truth. <laughs> I think that's the whole other part. Well, and it's I all think secret. That, no I one think knows. that what it does impact is um, placement, because I do think that certain stores and libraries True. will – make placement decisions based on those lists and that can impact sales in a big way, which can then impact um, purchase decisions. So I think that that is, that is a concerning factor of it. I, I do think for authors. Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah, that is something, but I was just, you know, I, I didn't know how um, it might affect somebody like yourself because, you know, obviously your publisher doesn't give two craps about the list hopefully. And, you know, it's just looking at you making sure that you're writing the best book you possibly can and putting it out. Because at the end of the day, that's really what it is for, is to write the right. absolute best book that you could possibly write. Um, and, you know, when people go to your site, and I'll just let them know, it's elizabethheiter.com, H-E-I-T-E-R.com. I mean, the praise that you've gotten for your books from anywhere, you know, from Jeffrey Deaver, Tess Gerritsen, Lee Child, to, of course, you know, the best one, Suspense Magazine, and then, you know, all the other ones that, you know, you've gotten. I mean, it's got to kind of make you feel, you know, that you're doing something right. I mean, right? Yeah, it, it does. That, that is a real thrill. It's, especially when it's, um, you know, magazines or, or other reviewers that you admire their taste or authors that whose books you've read for years who, who read you and then are like it enough to be willing to put their name on your cover. That's a huge thrill and a real, a real honor, honestly. And are you looking to stay? I mean, is book, is, is your fifth book going to be the next book in the series? Or are you like, you know what? I have a story that I want to write, but it probably won't fit that well here with Evelyn. So I'm going to do maybe a one-off someplace else. Have, do you have those ideas in your head? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, so for me, so right now I've been doing two series, the, the Profiler series, which is the psychological suspense, and then the Lawman series, which is romantic the suspense. Series. So actually, right. um, my, yeah, my next three books are releasing this summer. They're in the Lawman series. And then on the suspense side, um, I am actually doing a standalone next, which I'm excited See, about. It'll be for, fun to do a brand I, new character and something a little different. I foretold that one. I could see it coming. <laughs> Now, and this, is this just because this is a story that you wanted to that you wanted to tell, but it would not have fit in the Profiler or Lawman series, but you still wanted to write it? You know, it came about from a conversation with my publisher, and I don't. You've probably noticed this this trend lately that a lot of authors who are doing series have jumped 
jumped out a little bit to do standalones to kind of just break it up and do something a little bit different. And so we were talking about that and I decided to, to try something. Um, we haven't finalized all the details yet, but it's going to be kind of a little bit of a departure for me. The character will not be law enforcement, my main character. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about the premise and it wouldn't, it would not fit into the profiler series. Um, and I have yeah. had some ideas that would not fit into this series. So I'm excited to do something a little different and, and, you know, break away with a different, different character, a different story. And that to be able to pull it out of the series means I can do a kind of story that I wouldn't be able to put in that series basically. Yeah. Do, do you think it keeps your writing fresh? Do you think it keeps you more on your toes by challenging yourself in those kinds of ways, stepping outside of, you know, your norm and having to look at a – because when you first started the profile series, you started with a blank canvas. But then when you start going right. through, things are filled in when you first start because you already kind of had that backstory. But now you're looking at that blank canvas again. Um, so, you know, does that – do you think that that keeps you fresh? Do you think that that keeps you more alert in your writing? I really do. And actually one of the things that I've loved about going – jumping back and forth between the two genres and the two series is exactly that. I feel like – writing the Laman series kind of, it's very different. It's, you know, it's got the romance, it's shorter, um, and it's different characters. So it's, it's a different challenge. And then I jump back to the Profiler series and I feel fresh for it. So I, I think that writing a standalone suspense is going to be the same thing. And really looking at that blank canvas is, is really fun. So in the straight suspense, it's something I haven't been able to do in a while because exactly what you're talking about, having all those details filled in, that backstory that I have to stick to, and now I can create something brand new. And what better for authors to do than to sit there and create? So I'm, I'm excited about developing. I'm, I'm working on it right now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, I mean, you know, that's the art form is, whether you're painting or whether you're doing music or whether you're doing movies or whether you're writing books, it's all about entertainment value it's all about creativity it's all about how you're kind of expressing yourself out there and it's one of those kinds of things where you know and you see it and i'm a big music person so i see it a lot of music you see a lot of bands and you you kind of after like a certain album they're like changing their different direction because they just wanted to do something a little different they didn't want to keep writing you know acdc didn't want to keep writing back in black you know, they wanted to maybe right. step out and do something a little on, on the different side. So do you see yourself maybe even getting out of and writing maybe a literary fiction, or are you interested in maybe doing anything nonfiction or maybe more of like a historical thriller, something that people would look at and say, wow, you know, she really kind of went outside the box here and really stressed herself? Possibly. I, you know, at the end of the day, suspense, suspense is my first love, really, as, as far as writing. Mm -hmm. So um, then the book that I'm, that I'm plotting right now, it, it is a little bit more, I wouldn't call it literary fiction, but it definitely leans in a very different direction in the genre. So it's a little bit more literary. It's not a procedural at all. Um, it's, it's, so I think it's going to, for people who've read me, I think it, it'll feel uh, enough of the same sort of um, things they expect from me on the suspense side with the high tension and the fast pace and everything. But I think for uh, people who've read the series, it's going to have a it's going to have a pretty different feel to it. I think. As far as doing a historical or a different genre, who knows? I, I read a ton, and I read almost every genre, and I read a ton of nonfiction. So, I really I never say never. I'm I'm also doing a short story right now for an anthology. That's a little bit of a something different for me as well. 
Oh, is it another suspense one? It is suspense, uh, and it's um, it's it's uh, I can't talk too much about it. Uh, hopefully soon, but sure. um, it's it's connected stories with a bunch of authors who I'm I'm excited to be working with. Uh, and it's with a like, uh, like, story. Like, kind of like what your publisher mm-hmm. set up. You guys have kind of got together and kind of did it this way. That's cool. I like that. It's not actually through my publisher. It's through um, a group that I work with blogging. So uh, and it's branched oh, out really? from there. Yeah. Ah, see, we're talking about it already. Let's keep going. So, now, you, I remember when we first met in BoucherCon maybe three or so years ago and, and down in Long Beach. And, you know, at that time, you know, you were just becoming new and just kind of getting yourself out. And, you know, you're kind of the new author and you're kind of looking around and seeing all these things. But, and, you know, all these people and these people that you've read, you know, that you've read and, that you've admired and now they're blurbing your books. So when you go to events now, do you kind of are, are, and people are now coming up and saying, Elizabeth, Oh my God, I loved your book. And this, so now you're starting to get into that realm. How, how are you kind of handling that? Because, you know, that's always a little bit different when people start coming up to you and, and, you know, and they're just sitting there, just want to talk to you about your stuff and, you know, get you to sign their books and things like that. How's that been? You know, it's, it's kind of surreal. It's a lot of fun. I, because I love talking to readers. Obviously, even before I was a writer, I love talking to readers because I'm a reader too. Um, so that whole process has been so much fun. But the idea that people are coming up to me because they're excited about the books and they're excited to hear what I'm doing next, that's a real thrill. That'll never get old. I think it's just like the first day the book hits shelves, uh, I always go to the bookstore to see it on the shelf because it's, it's still really exciting with every book. And by the end of this year, it'll be book 10. And Still, everyone—it's it's thrilling. Yeah, and and when, so when you're going to Thriller Fest and BoucherCon and going around, and now you're talking on panels—I mean, that's more—it it, it comes more natural the more that you do it. It does, absolutely. Yeah, and it's always fun, isn't it? It's kind of fun to kind of have somebody come up to you and you're like, "Oh my God, Elizabeth, I've been dying to meet you. I'm so happy I finally get to meet you," and you're like. And you just sit there and you look and you're like, yeah, but it's just me, you know? And you just right. like, it's just, yeah. it's just me, you know? I'm the same person who wears Winnie the Pooh slippers in my house. It's just me. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. I, I, it, it, it does really feel surreal every time. Um, but it's a thrill. I mean, you, you go to events like that. I had the launch party for Stocked um, last month, and so to have all these people come into the store to listen to me talk about writing and researching and then sign books it's a huge thrill it, you you kind of stay up on cloud nine all day after something like that yeah yeah and i'm sure you'd like to get the emails and and everything i mean mm-hmm. you're you're the one thing that i love seeing with the younger authors and then you know is you guys really do well on your website the older authors really need to either have somebody do it or something because they like get lazy with that crap and i'm like you guys gotta <laughs> you know you got to get up on your stuff, man. You got to start putting the news out there, and even if you're just writing something, you got to keep people engaged and update on what you're doing. People in today's day and age love to be in other people's business, so it's like mm-hmm. show share some business. I think I just, you know, I, I come up expecting authors that I read for the most part to have websites, so I came into this expecting, well, that's the first thing I obviously have to do is have a website, and it's got to be. Right. It's got to be up to date because if people want to know what's next, they have to be able to find it easily. So, but that's fun too. I I can do most of that. I have someone who does the complicated stuff for my website, and I do the rest. 
Yeah, and you know, I mean that's that's the way you got to do it because I don't know all that freaking code stuff. I mean, thank God for like WordPress and some of the other things. Otherwise, I'd be a fish out of water having to try to handle all that crap. Oh. Yes, it's, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. It's easy to mess it up. Oh God, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Elizabeth. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's great that we've been able to kind of see your career now start to really start to bloom. I mean, it's really starting to get out and. Um, I'm always excited to kind of see what you have going on next and, and just to be able to kind of just see your progression. So can't wait to see like this new standalone and what you have. And you said you have three books in the Lawman series coming out this year? Yep, June, July, and August will be the three, lawman, three more Lawman Toledo. books. So is that like a trilogy within the series? Is that why you're putting about June, July, August? It is, right. Right, so the first three are kind of a contained trilogy, and the second three are a contained trilogy. It's all part of the same series, Connected Characters. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, again, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Again, it's always fascinating to hear from you and see what you got going on. So thank you for putting on, sharing with us, and we will see you next time. Sounds great. Thank you for having me back. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Elizabeth Heider, and you can check her out. Go to ElizabethHeider.com, H-E-I-T-E-R.com, for more information on her latest book, Stocked, fourth in her Profiler series. I'm telling you that you've got to go back and just get all four, spend a weekend, especially here in California where it's been raining and dreary and you don't even want to go outside, which is kind of odd for California. And, you know, it's a series that you can just jump into and you can just kind of devour. So, um, again, the, the latest book is called Stocked. But check her out, get her four books in the Profiler series, and then you have a new one that's on your bookshelf, and then you can just follow on the Lawman if you want to go in and check out her other work. So um, we are going to now our halfway point, and we are going to be joined now with author K.J. Howe, which she put on her cover. I know her real name, so we'll talk to her about that. And in the meantime, everybody, you can take a listen, and we'll be right back.
Everybody, after the break, we have hit the halfway point here in Suspense Radio. And again, today is February the 11th, 2017. We want to thank you for listening, however, wherever, and whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you join us. Um, again, make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information what they have going on and all of their fabulous authors. Um, I'm still waiting to get the Kevin O'Brien book because I want to read that one, so I'm going to have to find out why I haven't got the arc on that one yet because i got to read Kevin. Um, but now we're going to transition into a really good friend of ours. We've known her for quite some time with Thriller Fest and the ITW. And you want to talk about excited when we were at Thriller Fest a couple years ago to hear that she was devouring herself into a book. And we're like, oh, my Lord, now we've got to see what she's got going on. And now the book is out. And we are so pleased to be able to have her and talk with her on the show to see what she's going on in a different aspect as an author now, instead of more of a fan. So, KJ Howe, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Fantastic, John. Great to be here today. Absolutely. And like you said, it's wonderful to kind of see the transition of, you know, fan and Thriller Fest coordinator and being around, you know, 20 billion books sold every year to now you are. Now, yes, and it's been wonderful for author. me because I can, I've learned so much from the greats, you know. That's the perfect oh. part about being on the, as executive director of Thriller Fest is that I've been able to really, you know, learn and grow and, and have the excellent advice from some of the masters in the genre. Yeah, I mean, just keeping your eyes and your ears open and being around all that stuff, shit's got to rub off on you. Right? Let's hope so. Well, yeah, I'm actually calling in from uh, Steve and Liz Berry's house and um, in Jacksonville, really? Florida area, because Steve and nice. I have a, a wonderful event a little later today. Oh, really? So are you guys kind of doubling up on some stuff? Because I know he has a book coming out um, coming out later. So are you guys doing it? What kind of event are you guys doing together? Well, Steve is very kind. He's um, going to be hosting me at the Bookmark in um, Neptune Beach, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Ooh. So. If anyone's, you know, nearby, cool. please come on by. <laughs> so then it's down by Jacksonville, huh? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Nice. So a little different from the cold Canadian weather. Now at least you're into Jacksonville, so you got some nice warm weather. I, I'm so incredibly happy to be down here. It's it, After being in Toronto, you know, it's so frosty. And then I ended up getting stranded in New York City. Um, I was up there for oh, my first yeah. event. And um, sadly, the one in Boston was canceled due to that massive snowstorm. Um, but yep. the good news is that we'll rebook it. So it'll be fantastic. Yeah, so but you're kind of doing the whirlwind, but you're doing it now, like we said, like as an author. And your latest book is called The Freedom Broker, your first now, a kidnap and ransom thriller. Um, and we know we've talked, the idea has been jumping around your head for quite some time. So it's great that you were able to 
get it done and get it out, and now it's in people's hands. So tell us, Freedom Broker, what is it? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I've been studying kidnap and ransom for the last three years intensively, talking to you know what we call the industry term as response consultants, and that's basically kidnap negotiators. So my character, Thea Paris, is one of these elite negotiators, and she goes to the hot spots across the globe and tries to bring hostages back home, whether it's through negotiation or rescue. So it's a very interesting and dynamic topic, and it's, it's a world that hasn't really been unveiled very much in books, so I'm hoping that readers will find it interesting to learn, because if you read the book, you'll definitely learn a lot about Kidnap and Ransom. Yeah, I mean, that is... Probably, you know, I mean, I, you always hear, you see the shows and stuff, and people are like, you know, get the negotiator on the phone and, you know, talk to this. And then, uh, you know, or they're, you know, they get the big profile senator and his daughter was kidnapped and they get in. But, yeah, people might not really understand what's entailed, especially from, like, those people um, and their lives and how they are as, you know, uh, you know, people and how they even get involved in something like that. So when you were creating Thea Paris, I mean, how much intricacy did you kind of have to put in? Because that would be a very complex character from emotional-wise. And, and, I mean, you're handling – you're always in a tense situation. There's never a time when it's not tense. So that's hard on the psyche. 100%. And um, Thea is a really strong woman, but she's also quite vulnerable. And the reason she's a kidnap negotiator is because when she was 8 years old, her brother, um, who was 12 at the time, was taken and snatched right in front of her. She was sort of frozen in fear. So um, basically she always had this feeling of guilt, and that propelled her into wanting to become a kidnap negotiator herself so that she could bring hostages home because of what happened to her brother. Her brother was um, eventually returned, but it was a very traumatic um, situation for him, and you know it kind of changed the family dynamic forever. So, yes, she's definitely strong, and she's also vulnerable. Um, Thea has type 1 diabetes, which I felt was an important thing. My grandfather wow. had it. And I really wanted to introduce, um, you know, different vulnerabilities in her character because you know, didn't want to do a comic book type hero, you know, where the, they can, nothing can stop them. I really wanted to give her, you know, frailties and vulnerabilities to make her a complex and interesting character. Now, the one thing, and, you know, when people – are going to start, you know, finding out, and they're going to read, and they're going to read your, you know, your synopsis first here, you know, just on Amazon. So I'm on it right now, and, and I kind of read the first sentence, and I kind of say, you know, there are 25 elite kidnap and ransom specialists in the world, and it's, you know, K&R. Now, was that something, uh, the first thing that, that comes into somebody's head, especially mine itself, is that, now, is that real, or is that something that you made up for the story? It's actually real. I mean, I, I think it's a very authentic book that way. I mean, I've really done my homework and tried to research every aspect of kidnapping I can. The, the story How many itself people did you kidnap? is fictional. No, I'm <laughs> well, you know, I can tell you, but, you know, the FBI might be Yeah, did you have to kill um, me? And it's, uh, that, 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 there goes the show and shit. We're all done. Exactly. You're way too special. Like, you can't let anything happen to you. Uh, oh, shit. But, um, you know, as 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 closely as I could, I got to you know talk to these people. Um, I spoke to former hostages. You know, uh, for example, Peter oh, Moore, man. who was the longest held hostage in Iraq, almost a thousand days. And I've been I'm honored to call Peter a friend right now. And and you know what he's gone through and you know endured during that thousand days in Iraq is unbelievable. And I mean, he was taken with four British military gentlemen, and Peter was the only one to survive. 
And it was very interesting to understand this sort of psyche of a hostage. And our natural inclination when we're under duress is to fight or flee. But when you're a hostage, you can't really do either. It's, it's, it would be detrimental to your situation. So you just have to find a way to endure the boredom, the beatings, you know, the bo- like the incredible, um, you know, need to, to basically for food and everything, you have to rely on your captors. There's so much there that is so incredibly complicated and difficult for hostages that, you know, it, it's, it's really something that can either profoundly affect your future or some people are more resilient and they're okay afterwards. And um, it's been a really interesting journey to learn about what it's like to be a hostage. And um, there are actually courses that um, people can be sent on where you can have a mock hostage situation so you can actually experience in a mild way what it's like. No shit. I never heard about that. That's, mm-hmm. in- that's interesting. More and more. I could be a mock hostage. You could be, but, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's it, it's hard because, you know, you lose all your power. I, I think of kidnapping as purgatory. You know, it's like you're alive, yeah. but you're not living. You know, you're not able right. to do anything you want to do. You can't, you're not free to do anything. Um, the rest of the world continues on in the merry way, living their lives, but your life is frozen in time. And sometimes the hardest day of all is the day that you're set free because all of a sudden you're coming out of this time capsule and people expect you to be the same John that you used to be, but you're not. You're right. forever changed by your experience. Right. You know, so I mean, that is. I mean, that emotional roller coaster is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's some things that are precious to us: our health, our loved ones, our freedom. And in kidnapping, you lose all of that. And. When when you're looking at emotional, you know, ties, because uh, with such a situation like this, I mean, because it's always tense, uh, like you said, I mean, the, the the book is built in tension. I mean, you, you have tension throughout. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely an action adventure that has the tension kind of throughout. And since this is kind of your day, de- and this is your debut novel, and you're kind of getting your, your feet wet kind of in this genre, even though you've been around it so long, but now you're putting the words to the page, what was your biggest challenge to kind of keep the pace and the tension building all the way through to the end? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, you have to have an instinct for when to leave a chapter. And, and, and I would say that what I learned from, you know, studying the greats is to um, leave the chapter earlier than you think you should. You know, so that it's a cliffhanger. And then you're always asking yourself why. And that's where multiple points of view come in handy. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. And I don't. Maybe, maybe someone wanted to be, maybe Steve wanted to join us. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if that's the case. But anyways, not, not to worry, I pulled it. Pulled it that. We should yeah. get him on. <laughs> we yeah. should kidnap Steve. There you go. Um, so, so, sorry. so basically I would say that, you know, you want to make sure with the multiple points of view it's fantastic because what you can do with that is you can leave every chapter on a cliffhanger with different viewpoints. So you can't wait to get back to Thea because, you know, she's in danger, but then you're in the next person's point of view and something dramatic's happening there. And I think that propels a book really nicely. I think that's when, when people do first person, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is they don't have those multiple points of views to leave cliffhangers. Um, and, and as far as just, you know, I love 
really tight, um, twisty stories. So I, I tried to study how, you know, some of the people who are amazing at it do it, like like a Steve Barry, and, um, you know, tried to learn. And, and I certainly did a lot of, um, you know, work on my craft to try and get ready for the book, too. How long did it take you to write this? How long, how, from, from kind of when you just started and you kind of put yourself and started working on Thea and started working on the, mm-hmm. I don't know, did you outline or was this all pretty much organic? I'm more organic. Um, I always laugh when people, okay. you know, ask, you know, plotter or pantser? And and my quick uh, answer would be pants on fire. Um, yeah. You know, I really love writing organically. Um, I think it really matters what works for you. And I think, that, for example, Jeffrey Deeper does 100, you know, um, page outlines and they're fantastic and his stories are incredible and then there's the lead child of the world who basically writes as he goes so i feel right. like you just have to ask yourself what works and don't fight it because there is no right or wrong way you just have to listen to your inner storyteller yeah i and mean you know, you know you know as well as i do that stephen james is the is the biggest proponent of organic he you know he's mm-hmm. one of the these guys talk about all the time, you know, organic writing. And so, yeah, it's interesting to kind of see which way you kind of fall when you start doing this, and you kind of fell in the organic in the organic pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I definitely think you have to go with whatever works for you. And I'm I'm just almost finished the second book in the series now, which is called Skyjack. And um, mm-hmm. you know, the same thing. I just felt like it was really nice organic process, and I. It sort of discovered as as I went along. For me, it's really exciting because sometimes my research will lead to plot ideas, and then as I'm writing, something will surprise me. And I'm hoping if it surprises me, it'll surprise the reader as well, mm-hmm. which I think really makes things interesting. You know, I kind of feel like oh, sure. it's a discovery process, and if I knew like completely what was going to happen, I think I'd be less interested in the writing process. That's true. You kind of like to be surprised, I guess, as you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, right? I love it because yeah. to me, it, yeah. it also, I think, is organically. You know, you just sort of feel okay. Oh, wow! I didn't see that one coming. And um, sometimes I've been writing and I come up with an idea that is a shocker. So yeah, I definitely think you just can't fight who you are. And I and I and the more kind of committed you are to what you do, the better. And. Now, of course, I want to remind everybody that we're speaking here with author K.J. Howe. The book is called The Freedom Broker, and you can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, you go on Amazon, it's available right now in whatever format you want it, and you can get it. Now, the one thing that you're also doing is, of course, debut author. Now you're talking to people like me and bloggers and other readers and stuff like that, and it's, putting, and it's a little bit different situation than you know you maybe you're used to. So, how has this kind of press junket, I guess, if you want to say, been for you uh, so far? Has it was it a little daunting at first? Were you kind of a little nervous about putting yourself out there like you kind of have to do now? I really enjoy it. I mean, I get to talk to great people like you, John. So you know, what's not to like, right? Um, it's fun. You know, it, I love. Well, we're not all great. Questions. Some of us are kind of mean. I'm the only. Oh, nice I don't know. <laughs> Everyone I've met so far has been wonderful, so I'm, I'm lucky. Oh, okay, but that's good. Good. If not, you I, I let me know. That, Jeff, Ayer, that yes. Jeff Ayers guy is very daunting, though. I'm not sure. We'll see how that goes. <sighs> yeah, we got you. That's right. going to be a little different yeah. conversation with him Tuesday night. I know, man. we got to watch out. Looking forward to it very much. Yeah. Um, but re- sincerely, like, everyone's really welcoming and interested. I-, I feel very passionate about the topic of kidnapping, so being able to talk about that. 
And one of the key things I really want to do is is to help people stay safe um, when they travel, travel safe. You know, that's important um, kind of second secondary mandate for what I'm trying to do is to bring awareness about kidnapping and that the fact that there's many, many hostages out there that, you know, haven't come home yet. Um, there are over 40,000 reported kidnappings every year, and that number is on the rise, partially wow. because um, military and police in third world countries, many of them have been displaced. And so as a way of putting food on the table, they've turned to kidnapping, and it makes sense because, you know, they have no job and they have great security skills, and they can basically use humans as commodity to trade for money. And this is just going to keep growing and growing as the world, you know, is sort of in disorder. And I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, we can bring awareness to the problem and make sure that people protect themselves when they travel to these dangerous zones. Yeah, I mean, and in your tour right now, I mean, you kicked it off, uh, you know, you were with Lee uh, February 7th when the book kicked off, and you're going all the way through the month of February hitting many different cities talking, and you're going to be with many different authors doing different things. And then you'll be at Harrogate. Of course, you'll be at Thriller Fest. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be at BoucherCon. So you get a busy kind of whirlwind kind of debut, you know, tour you have going on. So, so far, since you've been out there and you've done a couple events, um, with Lee and, and Joseph Fender, you know, how has you know how have the readers kind of you know reacted to you? How has there been any kind of like surprises? Anything that you're kind of like, wow, you know, I didn't really realize that. You know, whenever I whenever you kind of read, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize they were like interested in that part. Like, wow, you know, that. So you start to see little things about mm-hmm. how readers start to look at books. Have you had any kind of experience like that yet? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people are really intrigued by, for example, kidnap and ransom insurance. Uh, I was even talking to Steve today, and he didn't even know such a thing existed. And so things like that, I, I love when you can, you know, spread the word about something interesting and intriguing. You know, for example, you know, a lot of multinational corporations like Coca-Cola, they have executives stationed all over the world. And so they have mm-hmm. to buy kidnap and ransom insurance usually sometimes as a part of a group policy, you know, for everyone. And the interesting thing about kidnap and ransom insurance is many people that have it don't even know they have it. And that's part of the policy sometimes because you never want to have a situation where someone sets up their own kidnapping or fake something to get money. Right. And by them not knowing they have it, they're, you know, they're still covered, right, and there's something wrong, but at the same time there's nothing nefarious that can happen. And they also shouldn't know how much they're insured for. So, for example, let's say, you know, John Robb was, like, kidnapped and he was insured for $3 million. Well, then if John was tortured, he'd probably be, able, you know, coughing up the fact that, hey, I'm insured for $3 million. Whereas if you didn't know, it just puts um, the negotiator in a much better seat to, you know, to be able to negotiate right. on your behalf. And um, it's very interesting, too, you know, that um, basically – they start out really high, the kidnappers, asking for a lot of money. And it ends up being, um, they end up getting usually about 10 to 15% of their asking price. So that's quite a lot of really? negotiation that's it? on the way down. That's it, 10 to 15%. And they just so ask for the So food, it's like that right? old saying in Ruthless People, I've been kidnapped by Kmart. I always <laughs> love that line. Yes, or, yes, it's a blue light special. <laughs> blue light special kidnapper. <laughs> the blue light special kidnapper. <laughs> Yes, that I'll would, kidnap you for cheaper than the other guy yes, will. Exactly, exactly. I think we we've got a new plot idea for the next novel. 
Um, oh, my God, that. we could turn this into a comedy. <laughs> you have dueling kidnappers. It's like, no, screw you. I'm cheaper than the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it, it's certainly an interesting field, you know, and there's so much, you know, richness wow. and, and interesting things in this field. So just to, you know, go circle back to that question, you know, um, when I was yeah. at the event in New York City with Lee, um, you know, um, promoting the, the Freedom Broker, it was intriguing to see the questions people asked, you know, and and one of the excellent questions Lee asked me was, you know, well, why don't they just, like, say, all right, let's stop beating around the bush and let's just talk about how much money do you want, right? And the reason right. they don't do that is because of the fact that what happens is people can become soft targets, and if they're um, – kidnapped then and and they give up a lot of money very quickly and they seem easy to kidnap then what happens is um they can be targeted again believe it or not or and one of their family members can be targeted and this has happened more than oh. once when a family basically said I'll give you anything give give my loved one back here's a million dollars and so they were returned and then the next you know month or two passes they're all settling down and then their son was kidnapped and held for ransom because they thought they're a soft target. So you, you know, don't. And you, the one it, thing, hmm. and the one thing you don't see that much of, like the question I would ask, why don't you see? Because it's astonishing the figures that you're giving me, and I think that it's great. Um, and it's almost like awareness to kind of you know for people outside of the fiction of the book, but. I never see the media really covering these things, like this person was kidnapped and this and that. Do they keep it away from the media, or does the media not want to do it because they don't want to publicize and glorify those types of things? I mean, what's kind of the percentage where people are kidnapped maybe and the ransom is paid and they come back and everything is okay? And then what's the percentage where they either pay the ransom and it's not okay? Well, the good news is is that most people, like over 90% of hostages, are safely returned in exchange for the ransom. But there are people, you know, who are killed while in captivity. Many are, you know, it just happens. And sometimes they even collect the ransom, even though the person's already dead. And that's heartbreaking, you know, because people are paying for a loved one that's All already right. gone. Um, there's also people who are killed while trying to escape. Sometimes, let's say there's a group of uh, yeah. hostages, okay, and one person tries to escape and is caught. Sometimes they'll kill them, to set an example, for all the other hostages to dissuade them from trying to escape. And then, you know, mm. it's it's really tricky, you know, because of, you know, the fact that it's, you know, life or death circumstances. And being a hostage is not easy either because every day you wake up not knowing if you're going to survive. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, what I find is that, you put you put so much energy, so much research, so much of your expertise now into this that this series is is going to be phenomenal for the simple fact because you know this is just from hearing when people hear you talk they're going to know that this is definitely a thought provoking subject matter that you have dived yourself into and now they're going to see it in the pages of the Freedom Broker and the Skyjacker and beyond. And I think that that's the important part also that instead of just, you know, when people think it's organic, you, it is outlined. You've, you, you've researched for years on what to do, and that's your outline. Yeah, that's a really good point, John, and I think you're correct. I mean, the bottom line is is that, you know, I'm immersing myself in this world so that I can really bring some verisimilitude, you know, and authenticity yeah. to the books. And, you know, I'm, all, I'm in the third, you know, book. I'm already planning um, – 
I know a few gentlemen who provide security for journalists in war zones. And so I'm going to explore that in the third book. And I mean, there's endless ideas because yeah, there are. kidnapping is all over the world. And I grew up internationally. You know, I lived in, in Saudi Arabia and Africa and Puerto Rico and Europe. And for me, I really wanted to create a series that was very international in nature because that's where I'm comfortable, you know, moving around the world, experiencing different cultures. And I'm hoping that people will enjoy it because in, in the Freedom Broker, for example, you know, we go to Santorini, Greece, Athens, Greece, and Zimbabwe during the book. And, you know, I, I've been lucky to hear a couple of readers say, wow, I felt like I was right in Santorini. And I'm hoping that, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a travel experience as well as a fictional experience. I mean, I will say that if I was looking, and I would say Santorini, Athens, the next one would probably not be Zimbabwe. So how does, <laughs> yes. kind of, you know, how, I kind of get to that connection. You know, maybe you would think like Morocco or Monte Carlo or something, but you go to Zimbabwe. I mean, that's just kind of like, uh, I, I mean, like that, that's just, that's just amazing kind of, you know, that progression to get into a country that really people probably have no idea about Zimbabwe. They just know the name. That's it. Sure. Well, it's a very beautiful country, but, you know, there's been a, it's very war-torn. And I, yeah. I've been there. Like a lot I've of been... African countries are, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived in Kenya for three years when I was growing up, and Africa is a very special place, and it kind of got in my blood, and I definitely wanted to set part of this book there. And that's and I chose Zimbabwe because Victoria Falls is the, one of the most beautiful places on earth, and there's the contrast to that natural beauty with all the incredible, you know, drama and tension of Mugabe and, and everything. I just thought it was the ideal place to set the climax of my book. Interesting. You know? So you're having a lot of fun. And then some, I'm telling you. I really love this. I feel like, you know, I wrote a, another book that, um, you know, it's not going to be published, and it was about a female sniper, and, and, you know, it was such a great, you know, learning experience. But I really felt like that character wasn't going to be the right one to do a series with. But now when I, you know, found Thea Paris and, you know, the fact that she kidnaps, I mean, helps, you know, people who are kidnapped, it feels like the right one to kind of the vehicle to drive the series because there's so many people in so many different and unique situations. And, you know, we're talking a lot about kidnap for ransom today. But there are many other types of kidnappings, like the political yeah. kidnappings, you know, the ISIS does, which are incredibly sad and, and uh, you know, often in, you know, terrible videos. And there's also, you know, virtual kidnaps and phantom kidnaps right. and, you know, a whole bunch of different types of kidnapping that I can explore in future books and people can learn yeah. about. And I'm hoping they'll enjoy that. Well, KJ Howe. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming on and speaking about your latest book, the debut book, The Freedom Broker. Um, fascinating read, and I could see this going on for a very, very long time. The only thing you're probably doing is kicking yourself in the butt going, damn, why didn't I start this five years ago? This is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, but you know what? The time is right, isn't it? You know, sometimes you just have yeah, to is. do the research and immerse yourself so that you can write these books and um, really don't have any regrets just really excited about moving forward and and if anyone's interested I'm at kjhow.com and um, I'm going to be, yes and I'll be traveling in the next you know two weeks around the US and so please drop by and see my website and if you're in one of the cities where we're touring I would love to see you and off to uh, Jacksonville today with Steve Berry 
and good luck with that. And we can't wait to talk with you and see you. And we're going to talk with you again on Tuesday. And one of the persons who blurbed your book is up next, Lisa Gardner, and she is actually on hold. So it's going to be great to get and talk with her. So, yeah. Lisa is, you know, one of the reasons I I wanted to write. So her her original book, The Perfect Husband, is one of the most incredible books I've ever um, read. So have fun with Lisa, and thanks a lot for having me on, John. Absolutely, and we will talk with you again on Tuesday, so enjoy and have fun. Okay, thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. So again, everybody, that is author K.J. Howe. Make sure you visit kjhowe.com for more information on this book, The Freedom Broker, an absolutely fascinating read into a world that is pretty uncomfortable maybe to read about, but at least it's in a fictional setting, so you know that everything is going to probably hopefully turn out okay. All right. So we're going to take this really short break, and we are going to be right back here with our next guest. Of course, it's February, so that means that Lisa Gardner has the latest book out, and you're not going to believe what she's got going on now with this one. So in the meantime, take a quick listen to this, and we will be right back. everybody here after the break again we want to thank you all for listening it's been a fascinating 90 minutes and we are grateful that we are able to bring you the last 30 here with one of our good friends lisa gardner um and her latest book is right behind you so let's transition right now into lisa because it is february and we always talk to lisa around january february because that is like her month for book release so lisa thanks so much for coming on how you doing I am doing great, John. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking about K.J. Howe's Freedom Broker. People should definitely be rushing out to buy that one, too. What a great read. So lots to read this month. Uh, There is. I mean. Just buy lots of books. Lots of books. (laughs) And it's wintertime, so it's great. Like I said, you know. You can stay inside, read some books, get some good series, get you know, get some new people because people are always kind of looking like, well, where's the new authors? Where's the, it's like, well, are you even looking? Because there's a lot of new authors out there. You're just not paying attention, I think. Um, Absolutely. There's some so, great, great talent out there. Right. Now, you've kind of, uh, again, you know, last year we talked to you uh, for a short time because you had a little bit of laryngitis, so it's great to have on <laughs> again today with, you know, out laryngitis, so we're good to go. Um 
But you kind of stepped away again with, uh, you know, outside of D.D. Warren with your latest book, if it's a Quincy Rainey series book uh, called Right Behind You. You kind of set this thing in Oregon. So give us the skinny about what you got going on in your latest book, Right Behind You. So this was a book for readers um, because I am a author that sometimes has series, sometimes doesn't. Um, when I needed to start the new book, I thought I'd make it my reader's problem. And I ran a Facebook poll, and I said, well, what do you want to see next? Do you want to see Detective Dee Dee Warren? Do you want to see Tessa Leone? Do you want to stand alone? And everyone absolutely shocked me by saying, no, they wanted the FBI profilers, Rainey and Quincy, who we last retired in Oregon, and I had not written about in like eight years. <laughs> so um, I got to go back and reread my own novels so I could remember my characters. And yep. it's ended up being a lot of fun. The book opens with Rainey and Quincy. They're about to do something readers know they've wanted for a long time, which is to adopt a foster child. But on the eve of the adoption, the phone rings, and the way it works in suspense, they're called to a crime scene. It's a spree shooting, and the number one suspect is their soon-to-be adopted daughter's estranged older brother. And now they have to race against the clock to figure out What's going on with him? Is he a threat to Charlotte and themselves? And what does this have to do with the murder of the kids' parents seven years before? Yeah, I mean, in suspense books, when the phone rings, shit's yes. going to hit the fan. I mean, that's just the way it goes on. You're like, oh, no, here it comes. And well, so, any time, you know, uh, you have two, you know, characters that are about to be happy, yeah. you know. <laughs> you just know. <laughs> they ain't staying that way for long. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and the, so the thing is, like you said, you know, eight years ago, you 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 kind of you kind of put them aside a little bit, and you you know didn't know if you're going to kind of come back to them, and you had to reread. I mean, and and I don't think that a lot of authors really once once you're finished with the book, you've been with it for so long that you're like, I'm not going to go back and reread my stuff again because I was I lived it for a year, and you kind of want to move on to the next one, so. When you kind of went back and read it, were you kind of reading it from the aspect of as a reader, or were you like, all right, I got to know what I'm going to do here with this next book? Um, you know, how is that to kind of go back and, and relive that eight years ago? You know, it, it was pretty wild. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, that at a certain point, like I'm rereading Gone, and I actually didn't remember who did it. I mean, halfway through the book, I'm like, this is a pretty good puzzle. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> I mean, it's been so many books for me, and I'm a huge reader besides, and I think I could speak with yeah. all, for all suspense novel readers out there, that sometimes you get halfway through a book, and you're like, wait a minute, I do know this one. But when you read a lot, things can get confused. Yeah. So, you um, almost wonder if there was a different cover and a different name, you'd be like, damn, this is a pretty good book. And you're like, wait a second. It's like I don't know if I, I should be embarrassed or if I should be proud that I could right. figure out who did right. it. But um, you know, one of the things readers know the characters so well. I have so much respect for my readers. I mean, they email me all the times and they remember things. So to the extent that readers oh, yeah, are like, we do. really want to see these characters again. I was like, I can't mess up the details. I have to know them at least as well as my own readers do. So it was taking the time to really, okay, where were we, you know, emotionally with the characters? Who did I give blue eyes to? <laughs> you know, even yeah. mundane things. So, you know, you, you get your homework done right. Yeah, because, and I think, 
you know, one of the biggest things that people realize is probably with the book Misery, which Stephen King wrote, fans really do care if you yeah. screw with their character. <laughs> well, they pay attention. You, you should never yes, underestimate they do. the readers. They pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Now, having so, said that, while I appreciate my readers wanted Rainy and Quincy again, I need something new. For, for me to be interested, because it takes a year to write a book, yeah. and I want some aspect of law enforcement or forensics or something that's new to me. So for right behind you, because it does take place with a spree killer in the mountains of Oregon, I ended up reading this absolutely fascinating article on fugitive tracking. And that even though we live in this day and age of all this technology and bells and whistles and infrared and blah, 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 you get to these mountainous regions, none of it works. You're going to be back to good old-fashioned boots on the ground. And in these really, really high danger situations where time is of the essence, and I found this fascinating, it's probably going to be a volunteer. It's not spot. It's not the expert you've flown in. You don't have time to flow some, fly someone in. It's going to be the local knowledge, the guy or the girl that's been hiking the woods the entire life, the local guide, the local hunter. Um, in this case, they have a little ode to Tillamook, Oregon, which is a land of cheese, trees, and ocean breeze. It's the head cheesemaker <laughs> who yes. happens to be a SAR you know, volunteer who finds himself um, heading out in the morning after an armed and dangerous 17-year-old kind of going, how the hell did this become my day, you know? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and, that's, and that's the one thing that, you know, I don't think a lot of readers understand that it's very difficult sometimes for the author to stay engaged even with their own work. I mean, they know yeah. that they have to get it out, and they know that the readers want to see the story, but – if you're not engaged with your own work, it almost comes through with the book. People are going to be like, uh, and I and I kind of link in thing to music. It's like, wow, you can kind of see that they were just, just weren't they just weren't into that. You know, they just weren't into that one, I guess, as much. And you kind of and it kind of makes sense, and you kind of see it. And I think that's why whenever you love to explore the emotional side of characters, I mean, that's one of the things you do yeah. almost as good or better than anybody else. And when you did that with like Charlemagne. And, you know, yeah. I mean, and her emotional roller coaster that she has to go through and only being so young. Yeah. That has to be always a challenge for you to kind of try to get the realization because they are young and they are still children and they have so much stuff that they have to go through that that's, that, that, that's so difficult, I think, for you guys to have to try to write and get this out. One of the things that brought me to suspense was psychology. I mean, I think we love to read it, we love to research it, we love to write it because, you know, what does make a spree killer? What goes on in the criminal mind? And then just to be ironic about it, for right behind you, Rainey and Quincy are going to adopt a 13-year-old foster child who comes from a background of violence, abuse, addiction, neglect. And one of the things they keep commenting on is, um, how many of their foster family classes and the criminal behavior classes cross over <laughs> in ways yeah. they're not sure just how unsettled they should I be. Know. Exactly. <laughs> they're basically a 13-year-old foster daughter and their criminal behavior class is the same. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
but the I mean, research, a 13-year-old who has lived 50 years worth of emotional that they've ever should have to do. Well, and I love this distinction all the experts made to me, because I'm a parent myself, and I happen to have a 13-year-old, which is often we judge kids, and in this Internet day and age, we do it even more. Those are bad kids. They are from a family. They misbehave in school because they just don't listen. And particularly with kids with a background of violence, um, with trauma, so they don't sleep well at night, so they're constantly sleep-deprived. They do have anger management issues. The question becomes, is it they can't, won't behave, or is it they can't behave? And as Quincy and Rainey understand about Sherla and love about her, is that in her case, she does want to be a better kid. She just can't do it just yet. I mean, really, physiologically, psychologically, She's not there yet. There's too much trauma. She has some mental disorders. There's work to be done. But if you understand that it's not that she won't do it, but that she can't do it, it enables the fostering process. It enables them to become a family because of acceptance. And really, in my real life, getting to work with some foster families, I just think what they do is extraordinary and that the gift they bring to these kids is just you know, absolutely heroic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it definitely, I mean, I, I think I always gravitate to the psychological thrillers more than just the, you know, than just the basic maybe suspense. Not in ghost stories. I like those. But it is always yeah. intrigued me. Like, why did a guy decide to wake up today and shoot up a school? Why did yeah. he decide to wake up today and do that? And now I'm starting to see the stories because – you know, everything right now, and I'm one of the big people that I talk about it in a little different way, is everybody's, you know, in today's day and age, well, not everybody, but the White House, is all worried about ISIS and this and that. And the one thing that I've been saying is, you know what, all the murders and the rapes and the violent assaults and the kidnaps and the things that are going to happen tonight in America have nothing to do with the terror group. And so it's True. like those are the things that I try to, you know, that, 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 that scares me, that it could be my neighbor. And I think that's yeah. the part when you put those things in a book, that terrifies me, not just from the story, but it could be my neighbor doing it. Well, and absolutely, right behind you is all about, you know, how much we love our families and how dangerous they are. I mean, for yeah. Sharla, Rainey and Quincy represent a fresh start. Parents, mm -hmm. she knows, loves them, and she's trying very hard in her troubled way to love them back. And now here comes her brother who's suspected of killing already four people but he's her brother too and she has memories and a room for him and her heart as well and but is that good is that bad is that dysfunctional i mean these things get really complicated very fast it's all the way family both puts us together and also tears us apart and you know as adults we barely have these answers it's interesting to watch you know two kids try to figure it out and right behind you yeah now, the, the one thing, like you said, you did this at the Facebook poll to see um, yeah. what people wanted, and it was Quincy and Rainey. So you had to kind of all of a sudden switch gears to find yeah. a story <laughs> and find characters that would have fit their profile. So, you know, how kind of was that, you, you know, thinking about when you're, when you're figuring out right behind you, all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, now I've got to kind of work my way into, into kidding out because that's a harder process too, when, you're, when you have these other series going on with Tess, with Dee Dee, of course, and now, you know, Quincy and Rainey, and then maybe just a standalone. So 
how was that thought process for you when you decided that I'm going to explore it this way with Quincy, with Quincy and Rainey to make it their own book? Yeah, you know, the truth is, from a logistical point of view, there's only certain cases an FBI profiler would investigate. And, you know, we watch them all on Criminal Minds, and overwhelmingly they're serial killers or abductions. And I just felt like I'd done so many of those books that I somewhat walked away from Rainey and Quincy just because I felt like those cases, those crimes, I'd, I'd been there and done that. And I did feel like at a certain point readers didn't need one more serial killer book. So the trickiest part when you knew you're bringing back people who this is their background is, well, I need a crime that they would logically be called in for, and I don't want it to be a serial killer. So, um, you know, a little Google search later, <laughs> spray killing. It's like, all right, I haven't done this one yet. And they're interesting. They're very different. We know a lot about mass shootings, which is, you know, a mass event in one place. But a spree shooter is rare but way more dangerous. Um, they will have a shooting close to home. In this case, Telly suspected of murdering his own foster parents. And in the course of that explosion of rage, they suffer a psychological break. And at that point, they will take their weapons, they will go on the run, and they will be a danger to anyone who crosses their path. But they're also beyond logic, so it's one of the hardest cases for someone like you know, Quincy to try to catch the killer because they're not coming from a place of logic. They've had this psychological breakdown and they are still armed and dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, again, I want to remind everybody that we're speaking here with author Lisa Gardner. The book is called Right Behind You. It is available now, of course, and however you want to listen to it or read it, whatever format you want it, it is out there now. Um, so, I want to kind of transition just a little because I want to make I, I want to make sure I get this out because I Jeff and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago and there was a big story that was out with the New York Times and them changing how they were going to do the New York Times bestseller list by eliminating paperbacks. Now yeah. you're an author that your hardcovers, boom, you know you're going to hit it. You know you're you're at that statue where basically when a book comes out, you know that you're going to see your books on the bestseller list for hardcover, you know, uh, and now people, now they're removing the paperbacks from that kind of thing. How do you kind of feel about what's going on in this day and age of not just publishing, but just everything that's going on with books? It seems like there's always another change in every six months that people kind of have to wrap their hands around. Well, so in the... um Interest of full disclosure, I should probably <laughs> – I forgot to mention this at the beginning, John, but we just learned on Wednesday night that right behind you will debut number one on the hardcover New York Ding! Times list. And, and the there we go. Box. See? So <laughs> I, I like the New York Times a little bit more now than I did see a week ago. <laughs> so if I would have asked you this a week ago, your answer would be a little different than it would be today. <laughs> I, I will say honestly, I'm all about – new talent, new books. Like I was really thrilled to get, you know, The Freedom Broker, which is a debut book to get to read. There's another great one coming up this summer for readers, Riley Sager's The Final Girls. And to take away lists, to take away recognition, makes it that much harder for some of these new books to find an audience. 
So I think suspense readers have to ask themselves. I mean, they really can read Patterson every week now. I think he has made that possible. Or, I mean, if they want to find the new great voices out there, um, you know, paperback was a great way to launch an author for a while. That's how my career was launched. Uh, You heard KJ talk about The Perfect Husband. That was a paperback debut. And thank heavens the New York Times actually gave it some recognition, which brought it to a wider audience. So I wish we would recognize more because I think that's how new talent gets discovered. And see, now the one thing, because Jeff was, you know, and Jeff brought up the point uh, that a lot of publishers look at the New York Times list and kind of say, oh, you didn't make the list, so we don't think we're going to pick up your next book, or they might look down or frown upon you. Even though maybe your sales have been better, maybe you just didn't hit the correct number that they were looking for in certain things. I mean, I find that to say, you know, I, I look at the sales more than a speculative number uh, that, I, I mean, than, than a list. I always like to know, hey, you know what, you sold yeah. 400,000 copies this time. Next time you sold 500,000 copies, so you're reaching more readers. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and so I was like, but the one thing that I looked back at, I was like, I don't think I've ever gone to the New York Times and looked at the list and bought a book that way. I still like the human aspect of people telling me what to do and then of course now they're in the business we see them all the time so yeah i mean but when he gave me that perspective i was like i didn't think of it that way and i would feel bad if an author lost their publisher just because they didn't make the list even though they still sold maybe more books than they were supposed to sell yeah and i can't answer that i I mean i guess i'm just looking for more ways to recognize the the authors that haven't had a chance to break out yet. I mean, but it's going to happen. I mean, I'm looking at my own career where I think it was 17 years ago, The Perfect Husband came out, and they didn't do it in hardcover because I thought it would be too competitive and it wouldn't make a list. So they chose paperback, and that was a great way to start. And now 17 years later, here in hardcover, I'm a number one New York Times bestseller. I mean, these things take time. It's like Seinfeld, everything. It takes time, and the more chances you give for a new voice, a new great author to be found and discovered, you know, all the better. Yeah. I mean, and and I think that's one of the reasons why our Best of list, uh, magazine at the end of the year is always so popular because sure. we always kind of, you know, because we're giving recognition to people to say these are the books that we feel that, you know, you should read or these are the ones that for the year and, and this and that. We kind of put that out. And, we do that for the way of trying to get more people to kind of discover books that maybe they didn't see because we're so bombarded with so much information. I can't keep up with all of it. I mean, my phone already has so many apps on there, and then I look back and I go, oh, I haven't even opened this app in six months because I've been doing other apps or everything else. You know, I love what Suspense Magazine does. I love that the international thriller writers always have a best debut novelist. I love the fact that authors help authors – all the time, like I was more than happy to read Freedom Broker. You know, now she's out with you know Steve Barry on tour. Um, you know, we try. You know, someone once helped us, yeah. and if, if you can help the next author, and I think readers love it. I mean, certainly on my website, LisaGardner.com, on Facebook, I can only write a book a year. Suspense readers, you know, they want some other things to read too. So, right. I mean, what do, like you said, what do you love best about being a great reader is having someone recommend to you this is a suspense novel 
you will love. So it's nice that we can all give each other this kind of recommendation and leg up. Yeah. And, and, and almost now a book a year, people are like, gosh, he's only doing a book a year. I mean, you know, Michael Conley's doing two this year and other people are doing others. But the one thing that, you know, you, you've also done in the past, which I always loved, was I loved when you did that novella with Dee Dee, kind of the pregnancy and kind of how those things yeah. happen. And you kind of did that little, you know, do you have any plans to do any more like little novellas, little more bridges Actually, and things like that to just give people those tastes? Here we go. Short, oh, I'm so good at this. <laughs> there's a short story out right now called The Fourth Man, and it has Detective Dee Dee Warren bringing a cold case. And it's actually based on a true um, previously unsolved case out of Philadelphia, and she brings it to Quincy and Rainey because that's something profilers do is consult on cold cases. So it's the three of them, they've got one day in Boston to try to figure out what really happened 10 years ago. A body was found of a college student on the library stairwell at 2 a.m., no evidence, no leads, simply she was missing a shoe. And... So the short story is The Fourth Man. It's them in one day trying to solve this case. It's been haunting the detectives for a decade. Yeah. And so now with the, did you do that for anticipation for right behind you, kind of like, hey, let's give you a little teaser again so people can kind of maybe remember if they weren't familiar with Quincy and Rainey at the time? It's like here's a little teaser for you before the book comes out in another month. Well, it's both. It is that, you know, to queue up Rainey and Quincy for people who maybe didn't know them, but it is also going back to what you said. I can only write one novel-length fiction a year, but, you know, to the extent people want more, um, I mean, this is my third short story. There was the seventh month, then there was Three yeah. Truths and a Lie, and now there's this one. It's like, I, I could do my best. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I give you this little bit more. <laughs> but I the mean, book when you look back... <laughs> I mean, you have to when you look back and you see the the history of the books and the things that you have written, and just to look at your timeline, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you have to just kind of pinch yourself to be like, I can't believe that, I, I, you know, that I've been able to do this for so long at such a high level and just continue to just keep pushing yourself. It's got to be surreal at times for you. Well, and that's why I, my, I've been great and my publisher doesn't fight the year because for me it's the research. That's what makes the book fresh. It makes them, like you said, it makes them interesting for the author. It makes them interesting to the reader. And that kind of research, I mean, for right behind you, learning about spree killers, fugitive tracking with an actual fugitive tracker. I learned about police canine dogs, um, working with foster families, working with a juvenile parole officer, um, a district attorney, um, (laughs) how you would solve, what would it mean if a seven-year-old you thought did a crime? I mean, there's so much to learn, and that, to me, I don't want to rush that process. It's, it's learning the weird stuff, too, like a poor cheesemaker really would become your lead tracker. And I don't know, the kind of cool stuff that, and in real life, not only would that be the case, but they really would. A, a local community member would step up and undergo this incredibly dangerous law enforcement hunt for the sake of their community. I mean, stuff like that. It's just really, I think it's the other reason we read suspense is to realize there's heroes among us. 
but it takes time to learn all that stuff. <laughs> it's all the stuff you didn't yeah. know you didn't know. <laughs> you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, one of the books, and I always tell people, and they say, God, you know, because people are like, and I say, oh, you know, yeah, I'm interviewing Lisa Gardner. Like, who is that? And I said, pick up the book, Fear Nothing. Just yeah. pick it up and go read it, and then you will see what I'm talking about. Because not only do I think that you have the best villain that you've written in that book, but the character – one of the, you know, with the sisters, the, the one, and I always forget the name of it, but where you can't feel pain. Exactly, and which is a real life thing. And you have to explore yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. And I was always like, I go, read that book, do it with the lights off because you want to be scared <laughs> because that's the whole idea. But I said, yeah. then that's what you're doing. Because, yeah, that's the one. And that's what you're talking about. That's the exploration. That's the thing that you're yeah. doing when, when you're trying to get outside and just to do even something like that. And then, you know, of course, and you, and you, Dee Dee's naming her pain, you know, Melvin. I mean, yeah. that's just hilarious. You know, it's the little things like that. Now she's getting a dog. She doesn't know she's getting a dog. Her husband and her child are conspiring yet. against her to get a dog. But in the next book, there will be a dog. <laughs> now, maybe it's going to be one of those robot dogs, Stormy, or whatever those things are called. <laughs> Get her like a robot dog. <laughs> so, yeah, I've liked this real quick. whole thing where Dee Dee is getting domesticated in spite of herself. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, It's coming whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so looking forward – so looking forward, when we speak with you next January or February, who are yes. we going to be talking about? Is it going to be Dee Dee? Um, it will be Dee Dee Warren and actually Flora Dane is from Find Her and coming back again. Um, there is a family that's been murdered. The 16-year-old daughter is missing. Uh, it can go one of two ways in real life. Dee Dee Warren knows half the time the teenager helped to murder her own family because she was mad about something, like drugs. They wouldn't let her date some dude. But the other half of the time, the family can be murdered to abduct the 16-year-old. Um, and if you know the answers to that question, or if anyone does, um, I, I am taking suggestions at this point. Book tour has been a little <laughs> derailing. I, I need to get back to the book. And, yeah, answers would be great. <laughs> Anything you know would be awesome. <laughs> and if you do know answers to that questions, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of person you are. <laughs> I only know the law enforcement questions they would ask right. next because that's the research. Like, yeah, these are the things you'd investigate. I don't want to know the other part. Yeah, yeah, the other part I would be kind of scared if you're like, wow, you kind of know this a little too well from that yeah. aspect. <laughs> Security? <laughs> can, we, yeah. can we vet him out? So, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Lisa, it's always a great time to speak with you. This is only one of my favorite times of the year, and I know I'm going to have you on and, and talk about one of your latest books. So, like always, thank you again so much for joining us, and can't wait to see the next one uh, next year. Great, and I hope everyone enjoys right behind you. Thanks so much. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So again, everybody, that is author Lisa Gardner. Make sure you visit lisagardner.com for more information on the latest book, Right Behind You. She brought back Quincy and Rainey in a fascinating read. Um, you never want to miss. And like she said, congratulations to her. She is going to make number one New York Times bestseller list here coming up this Wednesday. So um, just it's just always great. It's always great to kind of to have her on. So we want to thank everybody for joining us, uh, Alexandria Weiss and Elizabeth um, Heider and then K.J. Howe. It's been a wonderful show. Four awesome women that write in the genre that stupid, some stupid men think that women can't do, and I find that really ridiculous. So you have, we've just had the all-women show here that have had enough to – 
scare the hell out of you and make you wonder about what the world is coming to, I guess, in some of these things. So, again, everybody, thank you so much for listening. It's always a pleasure. Keep reading. See you next time.